0: Goddag og velkommen til langsom Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den italienske filosof Emanuele Coccia, som har skrevet en bog, der udkom oprindeligt i 2015, men som netop er udkommet på dansk, og som er et veritabelt nyt hovedværk inden for en radikal gentænkning af menneskets forhold til sig selv, til dyrene, Og ikke mindst til planterne. Kotjas grundtanke er, at planterne er blevet overset i hele den moderne filosofi. Vi har haft fokus på mennesket, vi er begyndt at se en lille smule på dyrene, men planterne har altid været holdt uden for vores humanistiske forestillinger om verden. Men i virkeligheden, siger Kotsia, er det planterne, som er forudsætningen for vores liv, planterne er det allerførste, de er forudsætningen for vores åndedræt. Og hver éneste gang vi trækker vejret, er vi forbundet med de planter, der gør vores vejrtrækning mulig. Og vi skal ikke forestille os planterne som en meget meget lav eksistensform. Vi skal forestille os dem som en meget avanceret eksistensform, der faktisk har det, kort, jeg kalder for bevidsthed. Bevidsthed betyder bare her ikke det samme, som det gør for mennesket. Det betyder, at de kan skelne mellem det indre og det ydre. Og det er der alle mulige forskellige tegn på. Kotsias tænkning inviterer os til at bruge vores filosofiske fantasi. Vi skal være villige til at gå ind i en verden, hvor vi tænker vores forhold til planter, til os selv og til dyr fuldstændig forfra. Man kan også derfor sige, at det måske er en lidt svær tænkning. Det er svært, at følge med i Kotschers resonemang, hvis man siger, at jeg skal forstå det hele, og jeg skal forstå det med det samme. Men som jeg ser det, er det overhovedet ikke det, der meningen. Meningen er, at vi prøver at følge nogle nye tanker, at vi bruger vores fantasi og følger hans resonemang og kommer nogle steder hen i nogle sammenhænge i verden, hvor vi ellers ikke er vant til at være. Og der er... En grundlæggende skønhed ved, at vi skal forestille os, at vi ikke er mennesker alene i verden, men at vi hver eneste gang, vi trækker vejret, som er forudsætningen for hele vores liv, kan mærke, rent fysisk kan mærke, forbindelsen til alle mulige andre eksistensformer. Vi skal se væk fra os selv som mennesker og forstå, at vi er en del af en meget større og meget mere avanceret sammenhæng. Verden bliver forenklet og fordummet, hvis vi udelukkende fokuserer på mennesket. Den bliver fortryllet, og den bliver fascinerende, hvis vi ser på den store sammenhæng, som vi er en del af. Kotsias tænkning er smuk, den er meningsfuld, og jeg mener også, at den i sidste instans er håbefuld. Fordi den forbinder os med andre eksistensformer på en måde, der faktisk gør klimakrisen til en nærværende anledning til at finde en højere dybere og bedre måde at være menneske i verden på.
1: Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially it's not good evening but it's hello to you Emanuele Katcha who's with us from Boston. Hi, hi Rune. Nice to meet you.
0: Jeg håber, I får lige så stor fornøjelse af at lytte til min samtale med Katcha, som jeg havde af at tale med.
1: Today we want to celebrate the publication of this book, uh, The Life of Plants, which came out just recently in Danish. and it's just a very, very beautiful book. It's an existentialism that asked us to look away from ourselves and immerse ourselves in the world of plants. And it's also, I think, a, a book that requires us to use our imagination. I want to ask Absolutely. you first, there's a, a you you write just in the beginning, there's a short paragraph where you where you say, you you want to remember something that you learned when you were from 14 to 18 and you were going to an agricultural high school to learn a real profession instead of just the fluid studies. What, what was the agricultural high school and what was it that you learned there?
2: So first of all, it was uh, a very strange episode in the sense that it was also the, the evidence that sometimes uh, when you take a deviation in your life, it's good. Because I went there because my mother... Obliged me to decide to do something which uh, had to do with real life, and also because she was she was skeptical to, uh, about the fact that I could go to the university, and that's also perhaps the reason why I became a university professor <laughs> afterwards <laughs> to prove her that uh, I could do I, uh, academic studies. And it was a very different skill, because, first of all, it was like in the countryside. It was a building with. I mean, within a landscape made of, uh, uh, yeah, the typical uh, countryside of uh, Middle Italy. And how can I say, I studied chemistry, botany, entomology, uh, agricultural sciences, zoology, of course. And everything was a very high level in the sense, I remember I had afterward to my, the friends of my sister to study chemistry at the University of Medicine. So it, it was, a strange uh, combination of bucolic landscape, professional and very practical teaching, and also high-level science. Uh, But what was perhaps more striking for me was the fact that you got the impression, or I got the impression that, uh, and it was for for me the most important uh, thing, or the most important teaching, that the very first object of science, the very first object of work, uh, the very first object of preoccupation are plants, the life, the needs, what they feel, how do they live, how you have to relate to them, you know, also to produce, of course, but also in order to try to understand what is happening in their body. And this is perhaps what never left me. So the idea that if you are doing science, if you are studying uh, the first object, it's not the human being or the human culture, there is something more important, more urgent and more present also, which is more alive also than human beings. So this is perhaps the evidence that never, that in a way, was inoculated in those years and that never left me. Also, this kind of strangeness or distance from this very typical humanistic culture that normally you are supposed to study at uh, high school.
1: Yeah, because it seems that you were introduced to cultivating the, the plants and a, a world of plants before you entered university and what you actually learned that you brought with you into the university. And then later, as a writer, you returned to, 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 to what you learned there because it's no secret that over the last couple of centuries, we've had an intense focus on the human being and we've we've celebrated ourselves with human rights and a lot of progress that you and I wouldn't live without. But with that humanism, which has also been under heavy criticism, there's also the sense that we are the center of the universe and that everything is about us. And then over the last couple of decades or maybe more, it seems there's also people saying, well, what about animal rights? And what about ethics for, 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 for animals? But, but you were saying in the beginning that plants have been neglected for a long time, that no one really cares about the plant. What is this neglect of the plants? So
2: there is, first of all, I would say a sort of psychological reason. So it's uh, much more identifying an animal that, you know, than in a plant. So in a way, it's uh, uh, since the animals, they belong to the same kingdom and they, we share with animals almost everything. It's normal to... To, in a way, to think of nature, first of all, thinking of dogs, cats, uh, squirrels, and people who are like us. Then there is also another problem, which is the fact that, uh, so biology uh, constituted itself through a huge amount, a huge form of uh, zoological, zoocentrical bias, in the sense that uh, almost all concepts we use in order to classify to the... Uh, Categorize and to think of life, come from the observation of animals. So that's uh, that's and not just in the common language. I mean, even the concept. Uh, I mean, the biological concepts are really drawn from uh, zoological observation. And this is, of course, this produces sort of uh, shadow in the sense that because of that, we used to consider that non-animal life, like vegetal life, but also bacterial life, the life of fungi and so on are not really alive as the life of animal. Uh, I would say that's the first uh, two reasons. Then there is perhaps uh, a sort of negligence, but on on another level. Because if you look at it, if you really think about that, we all have a huge uh, amount of knowledge about plants. We all drink coffee, we all love fruits. Uh, We all, uh, at least in Italy, for instance, we all uh, uh, know how to cook pasta or uh, and tomatoes. So our lives is defined by plants, flowers, fruits. So from companions, which are, uh, I mean, plants. Uh, but we do not consider this kind of knowledge uh, as something noble or something important. So there is this kind of uh, 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 hierarchy in the knowledge we have and we use in order to orientate ourselves in life, uh, which is that, Which makes that we give more importance to knowledge about animals than to knowledge which is already there about the plant. And then I would say there is another reason which is kind of interesting. I have a child who is now seven years old. And I remember when I started to read her books, uh, the very first books for children. And books for children are extremely interesting because in books for children, animals are always very, I mean, clearly distinguished and they, there's all kinds of animals. And my daughter so lent to uh, the existence of a lot of animals that she will probably never ever see in her life. And she knows the form, the colors, the uh, uh, the names in several languages, but plants in those kinds of books appear always as under the platonic form of uh, just uh, green, Brown and that's it. There is no variety. There is just the plant in a very very generalized form. So and this is a way if you want of uh, induced ignorance. Uh, so we train children to consider that plants do not have uh, variation. That plants are like just the repetition of one single pattern, which is this combination of the two colors, brown and and green. Uh, so this is uh, this could be perhaps uh, a problem. And then I would say there is another reason, which is more, how can I say, which is more uh, subtle, which is the fact that, in a way, we do not consider our plants as really living beings. And uh, mm-hmm. make an example. If, let's take uh, a boulevard, so a big street in uh, in Paris or in Copenhagen or here in Boston. If this, in this uh, street there is, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 trees, uh, very old trees, uh, 200 years uh, old trees, uh, nobody would feel that you are, in a way, in company. And that there is a lot of people there. But if in the street you see 50 or 60 sheets, 50 or 60 lions, or 50 or 60, I don't know, uh, uh, dogs, uh, everybody would say, wow, there is so many people there. (laughs) uh, So this is a big problem, the fact that we do not associate with plants the idea of life. And life in general, we consider trees in the, in the city as like uh, kind of uh, just uh, a green form of buildings, but also in, in the individual sense, because for instance, uh, I was always struck by the fact by the fact that we give names to every kind of animal, even the <laughs> tiniest one. We give uh, them uh, very stupid names and we never named plants. We never name, give names to, I don't know, to the trees that you see like every single day of your life. Uh, you see this tree and uh, it's like an ancient one, perhaps it is uh, 150 years old, and you never, or we never come to the idea, perhaps it deserves a name. So let's call it John or Francis, which could be interesting because a lot of treats are hermaphrodite. So you have to invent (laughs) a name which is both feminine and masculine. So that could be not just, for instance, a way to let plants appear again in our daily life as something different as just a decoration.
1: It's funny because I was just in Zagreb with my family in the Easter. And I was thinking that our hotel was just close to the botanical gardens. And and I was thinking when we were just there that we would never take the kids to the botanical gardens, whereas my kids, they're teenagers now. My daughter is is 20 soon, and my son is 17. And we still go to the zoo because this is a lifelong exploration of, as a matter of fact, very few species of animals. You know, you hope to see the teacher there. You hope that the Komodo dragon is there if you're very lucky. But quite close to us was this botanical garden, which had twelve thousand species, and we would not consider this an adventure going there. And I was thinking that of that before talking to you, because that proved to a point. I think that 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 was not really interesting. Whereas this zoo, which is which is not very very interesting, you know, you see the same everywhere. It's not an it's yeah. not an ad- adventure to to go there. But there is another point in your book, which is that this is not just the, the, the way we socialize our children or bring them up. This is also in the kind of philosophical tradition that, that there is a neglect in the philosophical tradition of plants and to a certain extent also in 20th century philosophy about nature in general that the humanistic sciences, they deal with the products of humans. You know, you can spend hours and hours and hours studying artworks as sacred object. And, we're kind of animistic when we look at art, you know these objects. We we ascribe them life, but you say that the philosophers have have almost been Don Quixote-like in their resistance to uh, to to nature and their neglect of uh, plants.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, they, there was this kind of uh, turn, uh, at least in the starting from the 19th century, actually, not so far away, where philosophers start to first of all to have a real dialogue with scientists, I would say, to read science, and then to consider, and that was the course, I would say, of philosophy, of contemporary philosophy, to consider philosophy as a separate discipline. This is the biggest mistake that uh, European culture or Western culture did, to consider philosophy not as uh, an intensity that is just passing through every kind of knowledge. Uh, so and that's why philosophy should deal with everything, should deal with also with atoms, molecules, uh, or whatever. And it's not an object. It's not a style. It's not even a method that distinguished a philosopher from one another or philosophy from a different science. Uh, but when people started, and this is this coincides with the with the birth of modern university, when people started to, to think that philosophy is like uh, a separate discipline, like uh, uh, which is distinguished by from, from the other, like chemistry is distinguished from, uh, I don't know, biology, that was the beginning of the end. Uh, first of all, because we produced a very, very how can it's, problematic canon of philosophy. If you're thinking about that, historically, uh, what we consider uh, the philosophical canon, it's quite an heterogeneous collection of books that don't have anything uh, in common. I mean, uh, Plato wrote comedies or literary texts. Marx uh, has written a text on economy. Uh, uh, There are other people who are uh, writing poems. Uh, uh, So there is nothing really homogeneous. There is just this idea that here in those texts, something happens in terms of thinking. But this is, I mean, you can see, you can say that even of uh, work of Darwin. So, I mean, even in the origin of the species, there is something which is extremely important for thinking. So I would say that this is this kind of negation of plants and living beings. And uh, it it was the secondary effect of this will of autonomization of philosophers linked probably with the birth of uh, uh, modern academies which should stop. We should perhaps come back to the idea that philosophy is like a way of dealing with knowledge and not a set of knowledge in itself. And that's why that's why perhaps even a chemist or even a biologist or even an oncologist, I don't know, uh, uh, should be called a, a philosopher or an artist also, because philosophy is not just something that... Uh, has to do or has to appear under the form of words. In a way, we should also start, I think, and this is extremely urgent, to think that you can do philosophy by doing films. You can do philosophy by designing garments or cars and so on. So thinking is everywhere. And that's why philosophy is everywhere. And that's why we can use everything in order to do philosophy.
1: But you're very specific and challenging to our regular way of, of thinking. At least, I think our regular way of doing philosophy, because I think many of our everyday understandings actually are very preoccupied with, with plants. And, you know, when you have people taking care of a garden and talking about how they cultivate their, their garden, my daughter, she works in a flower shop, how much they talk about. And then you realize they have a lot of different words for it. But, but when we do philosophy, at least, there is a tradition of closing out nature and after that there was a, a tendency in 20th century literature to say that science is stupid like you know the famous words by yeah. martin heidegger die wissenschaft denkt nicht that this understanding that that the natural sciences they were all about subject and object a person looking at at the world and reducing the world to to a clockwork so there is also i think a tradition of neglecting the natural sciences this science that has nature as it, it not object in a traditional sense, but as a terrain of, of investigation.
2: Yeah, there is a, a huge problem, which is the fact that I think most of the philosophers who are writing on science uh, never ever enter in a science lab uh, and never ever <laughs> try to open a book of, uh, I mean, biology, physics, and uh, chemistry since I was, I mean, to me, the very first access to thinking and to philosophy was on the country, chem- books uh, or handbooks of chemistry, biology. So I always thought that f- scientists today are the biggest metaphysicians uh, uh, in circulation because they, first of all, they ask uh, questions, not just as you told uh, before about human beings, but they ask questions about the cosmos. They, they are cosmologists. So they, are, they look at the totality. But secondly, because uh, they really, in a way, imply in what they are doing, very surrealistic form of metaphysics. I would say stress just two things. First of all, the book uh, I published on plants, in a way, it is just a commentary of the very first two sentences you can find in every handbook for botany for high schools or for university, which is the idea that plants are responsible for the structure or for the life of this world. In two senses, they inoculate oxygen in the atmosphere. So they make our world breathable on the one side. And on the other side, they are responsible of the the fact that energy is available for every animal here on earth. So because they, they take the sunlight and they insufflate into the mineral flesh of the earth. So everything I wrote is just a comment on this sentence. So, but also, I try to comment those two sentences in order to show that this idea, if you take it seriously, it produced the mass surrealistic form of cosmology or uh, that you can imagine, which is even crazier than what you can find in ancient myths in uh, South America or in Siberia. So there is an extremely stunning form of reimagination of the world uh, within science, uh, which very often is not made explicit because scientists had to write in this very stenographic and very short way, which is the paper where you had to condense uh, your question in like two pages uh, and you do not have time and you're not allowed to, in a way, speak out or to to, to show all the implications of what you are doing but science is a form of imagination. And then there is another problem. When you repeated the the sentence by Heidegger, so Wissenschaft denkt nicht, the problem is that, as I said, philosophers or people are speaking about science, uh, are thinking of science as uh, like, as if we were still in the 16th, 17th century, as uh, people really would think that there is a subject and an object whereby at least since, 120 years. So you are in Copenhagen, for instance. Physics, uh, since at least 120 years, thinks that uh, matter, ordinary matter, is the same kind of behavior as consciousness. So that you have the same form of contingence and every the same form of strange behavior that you normally can witness in self-conscious entities. uh, Or... uh, Biology, at least since the discovery 100 years ago, so when Karl Fritsch discovered for the first time that bees are able to communicate uh, with each other, extremely complex uh, uh, elements. So they they are dancing GPS bees. They are able to show to other people where meadows are and so on. So from this moment on, uh, biology started to accumulate a lot of knowledge about the fact that every single animal is speaking all the time uh, and not not just animal plants are speaking all the time so out there in nature there is a huge amount of discourses of uh of very complex conversations uh, we know that dolphins are calling by name themselves uh, so there is uh we know that there is a huge emotional life out there so uh in nature everything is cultural it is just that we do not have a Rosetta steel, which translates our language with the language of other animals. But we, science or biology is telling us since at least 120 years uh, that there is no discontinuity between uh, mental or psychological life within humans and the mental or psychological life among non-humans. And why is it so tragic that the uh, philosophers do not read any more scientists. It is because, for instance, uh, if we take seriously this kind of uh, evidence, uh, we should, for instance, uh, start to understand that every research on animals and plants is a form of ethnography. So, if we if mm-hmm. we if we take seriously that uh, that I don't know lions are speaking, that I don't know bees are speaking, that I don't know plants are speaking, then A biologist, a zoologist, a botanist uh, who is trying to understand what is the life of a plant is not so different from uh, an ethnographer who is just trying to understand how this population and this piece of earth uh, is living. And for instance, this could be interesting to say every study of living being is a form of ethnography. It could be interesting also in order to unify human science and non-human science. And that could be, for instance, one of the contributions that uh, human science can give to science, or or perhaps that could be a way of overcoming this very stupid opposition between natural sciences and human science.
1: But is there a problem? It seems to me that the way we use the word nature, nature is very often just uh, thought of as that which is non-human and not created by humans so the the concept nature is very often invoked as the opposite of what we are or, or what we have created so is there a problem in just this concept of nature no i
2: don't think so because actually uh if i mean the use it could be problematic effect that uh, as you said uh we use sometimes the concept you know to oppose a, a sphere against uh, our experience or our world our human world but First of all, we are all Darwinists, and everybody's thinking that there is no distinction between uh, human being and the other uh, living beings. But the the word nature is a very beautiful one because nature is, uh, I mean, it comes from Latin, and the root of uh, nature is to be born. It's the same word. So nature is actually the collection of living beings who, in order to be alive, in order to come to existence, have to be born, which is extremely interesting. Why is it interesting? First of all, because actually you can distinguish living and living by this fact. I mean, to be born is like the heaviness of, of being alive. But secondly, because birth is quite an interesting phenomenon. So we never think about birth. We think all the time about death. But this is because uh, our culture is like produced by males and is actually for males. So by people who are not uh, making this experience of uh, giving birth. But birth is a very strange uh, phenomenon. If I think about that, the birth is the fact that actually in order to live, uh, every single living body cannot just take a piece of matter which is there, uh, which was not occupied by someone else. In order to be uh, something, a living being has to take a body and a life who already lived. So the birth is the fact that you are obliged Mm -hmm. to recycle past uh, and already living uh, piece of matters and bodies. Uh, Why it is so important? Because first of all, uh, because it shows that life uh, is a kind of very strange process of recycling. So we are recycling the atoms, the body, the DNA of our parents. but secondly, and more importantly, uh, this uh, phenomenon to think about birth and uh, to think that birth distinguish things from others, it's because uh, birth uh, produces a, a form of continuity among all living beings. So in a way, because of the fact that I'm birthed, mm-hmm. I am I was mm-hmm. born, uh, everything I have uh, come from my parents. Uh, so I, I am, my, my two parents put in one body and transformed into Siamese twins in a way. But that means that the life which my body is like conveying, for instance, is older than my body. So I am now 45. But since the life that is animating my body was already there, this was the life of... And there is no solution of continuity. There is no break. That means that this life is actually 75. It's like uh, my mother was, I think, 30. But since my mother was also born, uh, uh, that means that the age of the life of my uh, body, or which is contained, but it's like as old as humanity itself. uh, But since humanity also was born, uh, so that means that there is a continuity that uh, goes from the very first living being to ourselves. Birth is this fact uh, that every single living body is conveying a life which never stopped to live uh, since the beginning of life on Earth. So that's why it's so important to think of nature. And that's why it's so important to think of birth. Birth is the evidence as we are at the same time very young, but also extremely old. And that every single living being is carrying this kind of continuity and this kind of huge temporality of life that never stopped. But it's the fact that life can never be stopped, okay? that we are just a, a form of something who is living since billions of years. Each of us is that.
1: And that understanding of nature also reflects on another very, very important point in your book, which is uh, the nature of the breath, that the breath is the, the precondition of life. It's the first thing and the last thing that we do in our lives, and we owe our breath. To the plants that that the plants create the world of oxygen that we use to live that, that we need in, in in order to live. I think that's a very fascinating thought. It's very evident as soon as you read it in your book. But why didn't I think of that before? And we think of the word psyche in Greek, which is which comes from from the same and and Hades. You know the land, which is also the, the 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 breath. Can you tell a little bit about how breath connects us to the plants? Yeah,
2: first of all, it's uh, breathing means uh, already have a connection uh, to the plants because we are breathing in order to grasp uh, oxygen, which which is uh, the, the byproduct of photosynthesis. And breath is an interesting phenomenon because it's like, uh, it's the evidence of the impossibility of distinguishing a subject from an object because each time that we breathe, we take a part of the world, uh, an objective part of the world, and we transform it into something which is ourselves and the other way around, we take something from our body and transform it into, into a part of the of the universe. So from this point of view, this dynamics where subject and object are replacing each other or are exchanging their place. It's I think what we call life because you can find this kind of, uh, of phenomenon in every single Living being, but in every single also how can I say phenomenon, number, even speaking is something at that. In a way, speaking means also to, in a way, to transform something which was in my consciousness into something which is now in front of all of us, which is objective. But also the other way around. Whenever I'm listening someone to speaking, the the soul of someone becomes a form or, or a content of myself. So this is Brett was important to me you know, to understand that the these frontiers uh, we are actually drawing between things uh, are actually very, very weak ones. Uh, We are always uh, uh, entering other bodies in a physical and metaphorical way, and we are always invaded by other bodies in a physical and metaphorical way. Another evidence of this kind of uh, abolishing of frontiers among living beings is eating. We we also mm. not speak at all about eating, but eating is an amazing and very strange and weird process. So for a lot of reasons, because we we suppose, for instance, that that our flesh is like the most intimate and the most private form of, of possession of ourselves, but our bodies is like a cosmic battery where we, <laughs> in a way, where a lot of flesh of other animals plants uh, and we need to mix the flesh our flesh with the flesh of our uh, living beings we need to reincarnate ourselves in other living beings so from this point of view breath was the evidence for me that to live or to be alive is always a phenomenon of
1: mixing there's also in this uh, connection and this connectedness with between us and the plant something that in your book that requires a lot of imagination, but we can get there. I think if if we we work with it, namely that that we should understand the the consciousness of plants, that they have sort of a a consciousness, but it's difficult for me to imagine a consciousness without a brain. These two go together for me, you know, and we have a long tradition of reading stories about animals like Donald Duck. You don't think of him as a duck. You think of him very soon. You think of him as as a person and you know, you have the fables of, Fontaine that we all grew up with, and we think of, and, and so it's easy for us to think of the minds of, of of animals, but for plants, it's it's a little bit more challenging. To how should we think of this consciousness in plants without a brain?
2: So first of all, the I mean, what happened in the last decade? Let's say through the researches uh, uh, by Stefano Mancuso, Francesca Paluska, or uh, tiny trawawas. So a couple of botanists in the world, uh, they proved actually that plants are able or are perfectly conscious of what is happening or a, a way of what is happening uh, in front of them. They are aware of what is happening within themselves and they're also aware of the distinction of the inside and the outside. This is already a perfect definition of self-consciousness. Uh, and why It's so difficult for us to accept uh, self-consciousness in non-zoological entities because uh, of zoological bias. We always asked animals uh, to prove us or to show us what is intelligent. Just think of mouses. We we do experiments with mouses uh, just to know what does it mean to think, uh, but we never ever had the courage to ask a tree. to let us know what does it mean to think. Uh, And that brought us to think that uh, intelligence is like uh, uh, intrinsically linked with the presence of a brain of a nervous system. And it's a big mistake. First of all, it's a mistake for physiological reasons because the brain or the nervous system is not just uh, the organ for the production of intelligence. It's the organ for decentralization of consciousness and intelligence. And from this point of view, if we accept that thinking or consciousness is not just liquid brain, we understand that why plants did not develop brains. Uh, What do I mean? I mean that actually to be a plant means to be someone who is obliged to live where, for instance, you are now for like 10 centuries. If you are such an organism, to choose the way of organizing your body that animals shows uh, that is specializing the parts of your body, tissues uh, and uh, concentrating uh, uh, the exercise of a function on a single spot uh, is a very stupid attitude mm-hmm. because if you are like where you are now and you are concentrating or your for instance uh, uh, relationship with the light uh, with the, in these two very tiny holes, uh, then someone is coming and it's like uh, destroying your eyes. You are blind for like 900 years. That's why it's a very, very stupid way of uh, organizing. That's why plants prefer normally to distribute the foundation or the possibility of exercising a function on all the bodies, or they normally multiplicate specialized organs in 2000. So, so in a way, this is what, what is happening. And this is, uh, you, you asked me, how should we think of thinking if you are a plant? You have to think of thinking as something you can exercise with your whole body. Or speaking, uh, it's not just exercising the mouth, but like they, plant speaking, uh, it's a metaphor, but it, it, it not just in order to give an idea, plant are speaking through just freeing chemicals And it would be like, as when you are smelling, or you know what I mean? So this is, you are speaking with all your body. So, and this is, I think, important for also two reasons. First of all, the idea or the prejudice that the brain is the only place in the or the the only reality of intelligence made us ask for centuries how it is possible that life was stupid for billions of years. And then suddenly (laughs) intelligence came, uh, which is uh, a very problematic way of thinking because I'm a professor. So I never saw stupidity produce intelligence. It's always often the other way around. (laughs) Intelligence can produce stupidity, but not that. So, and of course life is always intelligent. Every single living being is uh, in a way uh, uh, had to face a lot of problems, had to solve a lot of problems. And intelligence and life are synonymous in the sense that exactly like you never ask yourself if a living being can reproduce itself. uh, uh, You ask yourself through which anatomical physiological devices uh, a living being can reproduce itself. In the same sense, you should ask yourself not is this entity intelligent. You should ask through which anatomical and physiological device can this uh, living being think. uh, and just to conclude, the, the idea that brain is really the, the cause of our intelligence is also stupid for another reason, because the brain in every living being is an artefact. So there is someone, which is the embryo, who produced the brain, and who decided in a way to put intelligence on this part. So if, if the brain is the cause of our intelligence, then the embryo who produced the brain is <laughs> much more intelligent than the brain itself. So,
1: I want to ask you a last question, which is uh, very important to me personally, but also to the world, I think, which is that a lot of the things that you're writing about and thinking about in your book, they seem a lot more urgent today because of climate change. And I think that a lot of young people, they develop a sensitivity towards intelligence in nature. What makes plants move? Why are trees actually able to communicate with each other. And it, it seems to me, I wouldn't say it's a blessing of climate change, but climate change we has required for us to rediscover our relation to, to plants. And do you also see this, this new curiosity and this new discovery of nature and, and plants as a kind of a consequence of climate change among the young generations and also among philosophers actually?
2: Uh, I don't know if it's a consequence, Uh, it's true that, I mean, uh, since the 60s, 70s, there was a huge movement in, uh, for instance, in California or or in Europe that of putting forward uh, environmental uh, topics, not just in philosophy, but in design and so on. And that contributed to the change of uh, attitude. but I totally agree in the fact that for instance, I'm teaching history of ecology at Sciences Po, which is like the university in France where Macron used to go, so where uh, the political elite is trained. Uh, and what is striking is that for this generation, uh, the language and the main issues come from the ecology in the sense that uh, if in my times and in, uh, in the times of my parents, uh, the problem was salary, work, uh, Class struggle, all those uh, Marxist, uh, in a way, uh, uh, I can say, or not just Marxist, uh, but uh, vocabulary, were hegemonic. Today, people are just thinking about Earth, uh, biodiversity. So, this is a change which is uh, already there. But I think there is a lot of, uh, especially in the connection between ecology and politics, uh, there is a lot of other reasons that. uh, pushes youth or young generation to adopt ecology as like the very first political language uh, that you can have. First of all, ecology is the only discourse that can allow itself to speak on this side of every kind of cultural, ethnic, religious differences so mm. when, whenever you are speaking about ecology you are not supposed to declare your identity so nobody would think that greta thunberg mm. is speaking from the point of view of a swedish female so because no the earth is something which is evidently universal and we do not have to in a way to uh to speak about who is speaking why it is speaking this is the first point so ecology is in a way conveying a form of universality which is impossible in every single discourse we produce. So it's the only place where universality can exist. And secondly, it is not just an epistemological universality, it is something, for instance, that became evident through the pandemic. The pandemic was, of course, uh, a tragic event, uh, but there was uh, a couple of uh, important consequences. First of all, it was the very first event where humanity in general passed through a common event. So because of pandemic, all humanity Mm. has now a common past, which is a huge gift because we we can have now a common future. Only if you have a common past, you can have a common future. And, and so it, 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 it was a form of second globalization, not because of economical mm. or political reason, because of historical reason. And then the virus produced also sort of globalization of flesh because, because of the virus. Now we know that someone who is taking uh, the COVID in Dakar or in Sydney has the same flesh of us. And we know that because of the flesh, we are just one. And we have to reimagine politics starting from this idea that we share the same flesh everywhere, every time.
1: I think that's a very, very beautiful way to, to end this conversation. Thank you so much for thinking. Thank, Thank you, you so much for asking us to use our imagination. And we'll continue to promote your work and follow what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And bye.
0: Det var min samtale med den italienske filosof Emanuele Kocha, som altså er gæsteprofessor på Harvard University i Cambridge, Massachusetts i øjeblikket. Hans bog Planternes Liv, Blandingens Metafysik som den hedder på dansk er udkommet på hans Reitz's forlag. Den koster 250 kroner og kan købes i de boghandlere hvor du selvfølgelig altid køber dine bøger fordi du vil støtte boghandlere og du ikke vil være med til at ståt detailhandlen med internethandel. Det er ikke nogen særlig lang bog Det er en bog på 150 sider. Man kan ord for ord læse den på 3-4 timer. Men man kan også give sig selv lidt mere tid. Læs lidt i den og gå ud og se på verden. Læs lidt igen. Det er en opdagelsesrejse ud i naturen. Og læs Planternes Liv af Emanuele Coche. Jeg vil anbefale, at I tager turen sammen med ham. I næste uge, der taler jeg med den britiske økologiske historiker, Tim Jackson. Han skrev i 2009 en bog, der blev fuldstændig afgørende for for væksttænkningen og for hele den økonomiske tænkning omkring den grønne omstilling. Den hed Prosperity Without Growth og var en rapport, som den britiske regering bad ham om at lave. Han præsenterede den for den daværende premierminister Gordon Brown, for hans finansminister og for hele den politiske elite. De afviste bogen. Men der var så en masse, der ikke afviste den. Og det var folk rundt omkring hele det politiske system, som læste bogen og gjorde den til en kæmpe Global bestseller, der nu er oversat til 20 sprog og er blevet en ny klassiker. Nu har er Tim Jackson skrevet en ny bog, som hedder Post-Growth Life After Capitalism. Og hvis man vil finde ud af, hvordan livet efter kapitalismen er, så skal man lytte med i næste uge, når jeg taler med Tim Jackson. Dette program var, som alle andre langsomme samtaler, produceret af vores vidunderlige ven, Anne Pilegaard Petersen, som har samlet stumperne fra mine samtaler og sat dem sammen til noget, som jeg håber har været til at holde ud at høre på. Tak for nu.